Hi, everyone. Eric here. Two very quick notes before we get to our fascinating discussion with Vera Songwei. Our podcast network partners over at SubChina have a very short listener survey that literally takes a minute to fill out. And it's so helpful to get your feedback on this show and others in the network. Uh, you'll find the link to that survey down in the show notes. Also, conversations like the one we're having today with Vera are exactly the kinds of things we explore in detail every day in our daily China Africa email newsletter. Now, the newsletter offers in-depth daily China Africa analysis on all the stories shaping Chinese engagement on the continent, on everything from COVID-19 to debt relief to the crisis in Guangzhou. Try it free for two weeks. See if you like it. Just go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. And it's half price for students and faculty. Once again, that's chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, well, we are at a very interesting time in China-Africa relations and Africa's relations with the outside world in general when it comes to debt relief, in part because of what's going on with the economic crisis brought on by the COVID-19 outbreak. A very interesting statistic came out uh, today from the Beijing-based consultancy Development Reimagined. Uh, they published some data that shows that the total amount budgeted across all African countries to date for COVID-19 is 37.8% billion dollars. Now that really brings in sharp focus the key issues as to whether or not Africa can both service its debt and at the same time take care of its public health needs. Uh, let me walk back a little bit uh, in terms of how where we are in terms of the debt discussion. And it really began back on uh, March 24th when Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, he posted up on Twitter a statement ahead of the G20 summit that was going to take place later that week. And he said COVID-19 poses an existential threat to the economies of African countries. He then went on to point out that most African countries spend much more on paying interest on those debts than they do on their public health. Then, Kobus, your president, Cyril Ramaphosa, raised the issue at the G20 summit in, at the end of March uh, with Af with world leaders, we didn't hear very much until a few days later, and we actually um, about a week or two later, we saw some movement from the IMF and the World Bank that said they were endorsing some debt relief. But Cobus, right now, the question is hanging out there as to what's going to happen with Africa's debt and whether or not time is running out for them to be able to meet those commitments that they've budgeted for, as Development Reimagined pointed out, with $37.8 billion dollars. Or are they going to eventually have to pay some of these debts? What are your thoughts? Yeah, this is a really, really difficult issue for, for African governments because it doesn't only affect their ability to to um, to handle the healthcare side of the COVID-19 um, crisis. It also affects the way that they'll be able to deal with, with um, measures like sheltering in, in place. Um, so in South Africa, and I think South Africa probably makes up a, a, a very big chunk of, of, of the number you mentioned because the, the government um, announced very 
very large, very ambitious um, allocations to help support all kinds of workers, to help keep businesses afloat, to help to help avoid massive unemployment and massive hunger in Africa. In you know, just before even having to deal with the the the, the specific healthcare implications of the epidemic. So the the question of whether Africa has to repay debt right now or whether it's possible to reschedule repayments or pause repayments that is that is really a, a lot of african lives are hanging in that balance well let's get an update now on the debt situation and we are just so honored and thrilled and excited to have on the show uh, ms vera songway who's the executive secretary of the united nations economic commission for africa she is at the center of many of the conversations that are currently going on between the African Union, African leaders, and outside creditors. Uh, Vera, thank you so much for taking the time out of your very, very busy day to join us. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. So, Vera, I think let's just start. If you could just bring everybody up to date on where we are in that process that Prime Minister Abiy kind of kicked off back in March in terms of restructuring, canceling, rescheduling, whatever the word is, but dealing with the African debt issue in light of the public health crisis that's now confronting so many countries. No, I think, uh, thank you. And indeed, um, I, the Prime Minister Abe was uh, instrumental in pushing this conversation forward. Um, on uh, March 19th, the ministers of finance on the continent met. And I think that that was the beginning of the conversation on what Africa needs to do in terms of how it responds to a crisis. And after the meeting, um, the ministers of finance and development, I have to say, um, and the meeting was actually chaired by the minister of South, the minister of finance of South Africa and the minister of Ghana, minister of finance of Ghana. Um, there was an agreement that uh, African countries at the time were spending about two percent of their GDP, if not more, trying to respond to the crisis, and that that was, as Prime Minister Abiy said in his letter. Uh, already beginning to become a significant amount compared to what government spent on own budget and health care. And so the conversation then began as to what was a way of addressing both the health crisis and the economic crisis. But before we go into sort of the debt conversation, I think just to put into perspective where Africa was before the crisis, um, many African countries were growing. Um, we were sort of coming out of a commodity crisis, but the African countries that were had a sufficiently diversified economic base, particularly North Africa and East Africa, were growing at six, seven percent. Ethiopia was growing at eight percent. So there was positive growth, and we had about twenty-five African countries that had access to the markets. Um, when the crisis hit, and we could see that in Italy and Spain and Germany. Um, there was a need immediately for substantial amounts of resources to be spent on the health sector. Remember that as of today, as we speak, the G20 has spent about $8 trillion additional on its different economies in, uh, as a way of responding both to the health crisis and to the economic crisis. So I think for Africa, the question for finance ministers and governments uh, together was to say, where do we find the additional stimulus or immediate uh, resources to deal with, you know, lockdowns uh, and 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 uh, shelter in place as was ne- needed. The first thing to do is look into your budget and see where you can find some additional space. So the debt service line for many of our budgets is an important and interesting line to look at. So what finance ministers called for was a two-year debt standstill on all uh, interest and uh, principal payments. 
So this was the initial uh, uh, call. I think later on, there has been a lot of conversation around cancellations. And I think it's important to make the distinction uh, between debt service standstills and or moratoriums and debt cancellation because they are quite different market events. Uh, today, I think what finance ministers are calling for is still a two-year debt standstill. And I think even the IMF is saying that. What we need is a, a, some time to just access, to get a better sense of you know, how deep and how long this crisis is going to be before we talk about cancellations. Where in the the African debt landscape do you see the greatest challenges in order to to achieve this kind of you know standard like repayment standstill? Um, because you know what we've been focusing over the last while is is obviously a bilateral debt between China and Africa. You know we, because because that's that's what we focus on. But eurobond debt has become a, a very kind of worrisome issue as well. Um, so are, are different kinds of African debt easier or more difficult to, to deal with in this? in this crisis? That's a very good question. The African debt is in three buckets. The first bucket is what we call the multilateral debt. That's debt essentially to the World Bank, the IMF, the uh, European uh, investment bank. So those are sort of the, the big multilateral agencies. And those that, that debt in terms of seniority comes first. It's under a bucket, what we call the sort of preferred creditor status. And so essentially you're supposed to default on that debt. The second bucket of, of, of sort of debt and debt service is the bilateral debt. So this is debt to countries uh, uh, and, and direct debt. And this is probably where, you know, some of the debt from the countries we're talking about comes in. And then we have the third bucket, which is the commercial debt. Uh, um, and, and essentially, in terms of magnitudes, interestingly enough, our commercial debt on the continent is the largest uh, piece of, of, uh, of the puzzle. Uh, at, at about $17 billion. There is some confusion between sort of what is essentially our commercial debt and what's our bilateral debt because some of our big donors sort of give us both at the same time. But I think we're very happy that the G20 has agreed that there should be a standstill on the bilateral debt and has encouraged a standstill on the commercial debt. The G20 has sort of laid out, you know, very clear terms of reverence, thanks to our President Ramaphosa for his request and uh, being the only African country sitting on the G20, um, we now have at least a term sheet about how you go about having the conversation on uh, bilateral debt. We still need to work on the multilateral debt. The IMF has done some debt relief in some sense. It's not a standstill. Essentially, they've just given grants uh, uh, for that component of the debt service. And so, and then there is, of course, I'm sure you have heard about it, a sort of conversation around creating a bridge facility for the commercial debt. Again, on the commercial debt side, we need to sort of three principles must hold. The first principle is that our creditors must not lose any money, so it must be MPP neutral. The second principle is that our uh, countries should not default. So whatever structure we put in place must ensure that no country defaults. And the third principle is that Africans, African nations that had access to markets before this crisis should continue to have access to markets after the crisis at similar rates. Unfortunately, what we're seeing on the commercial side is that, you know, spreads have almost doubled uh, for African countries. And, and I think we need to have a discussion going forward about this because really this crisis is nothing, has nothing to do with poor policies, poly, macroeconomic policy shifts on the African side. So again, I think that there is a question to be asked about why the spreads for Africa have sort of significantly increased, whereas other spreads have stayed the same. 
Well, with bilateral and multilateral debt, it's very easy that you have stakeholders that you can go and talk to. Many of them are in Washington or in Beijing or in London. But when we're talking about eurobond holders and the private capital markets, who exactly do you speak with? And I mean, really, it's about Moody's and Fitch's and the credit rating agencies that are going to kind of cast their their verdict on whether African economies are are viable. Already, we're seeing Fitch. Uh, downgrade South Africa because of its economic performance. And I'm just curious what that conversation and who people like you actually speak with on the private capital side. Well, there's a number of people, of course, Moody's, Fitch, JP Morgan, uh, Goldman Sachs. Uh, and then our at the end, remember that even on the commercial side, it's a little bit of a chain, right? You have the credit rating agencies that are very important. You also have the banks that are, arrange the the the, the, and structure the offering, but then you actually have the people who buy the bonds and those are sort of, you know, PIMCOs and JP Morgan's and uh, Franklin Templeton. So there's a long series, but thank God uh, it's a very organized system. And we have the Institute of International Finance, which essentially is the institution that sort of brings together. So it's a bit like the, the Paris Club for the bilateral debt. You know, the Institute of International Finance is the equivalent for commercial uh, uh, conversations. So that is who we speak to. And, um, and, and you know, when, when I, I think it's in everybody's interest to avoid uh, a, a disorderly default. If we don't do something that organizes the way we get out of this crisis, what you will end up having is a Latin America sort of disorderly default all over again. And we know the consequences of that. And I don't think anybody wants to sort of go through that. So my sense is getting African countries together and having an organized way. And even the G20 does say that. We're not doing anything different or anything sort of, uh, again, Africa is not asking for special treatment. Africa is just asking to have the same access and the same re uh, resolutions of, to this crisis as everybody else is having. Um, and, you know, on the African side of that same question, who, who um, at what level is, um, are these questions being negotiated? Is it at an, at an AU level or UNECA level or specific governments jumping in? Like, how, how does that actually work? We are a, a, um, a secretariat, essentially, and we, we sort of work for the finance ministers, our board, and so essentially what we do is we work with the finance ministers. Well, is, again, the G20 uh, communicate is, is a voluntary process, but we believe that, you know, everybody should have access to the standstill. So what we're, we've put together a team that is facilitating those negotiations and discussions, both with the Paris Club, but with also the countries. First of all, I think in this, in the last 10 days, what we're just trying to understand is, you know, who, you know, who has access to the, first to the bilateral um, um, you know, initially when we started having the conversation on the standstill, it was only the poorest. Now we have sort of a slightly larger group of countries that has access to the standstill. Then you have to ask the question about, you know, what qualifies as bilateral? Is it SOE, uh, state guaranteed debt? Is it non-SOE? You know, so we're sort of also making sure of that. There are other criteria that the G20 put in place, such as countries should not have a raise if they want to uh, use this window. So we need to sort of inform countries about that. And then we have uh, uh, a series of sort of technical assistance measures. But what we would like to do is actually have all of Africa go together. So we are trying to make sure that there are standardized templates with the uh, Paris Club working together so that, you know, this conversation, the, the, the countries need the resources tomorrow. So, so we don't have time to sort of have long drawn out conversations. And so the sooner we can do sort of wholesale 
processes, the easier it will be for everybody. Yeah, I'm curious about the timing question, because as you pointed out, it is there is very little time left because the situation seems to be deteriorating by the day. Uh, we got new data in from Kenya, which showed that economic growth now is being pared back to one and a half percent. In Nigeria, the price of the Bonnie Light crude is in the low teens and at one point slipped below $10 a barrel, which is their major source of foreign exchange currency. And then obviously in South Africa, where they're in recession already, this is not to say that a lot of the countries are actually faring much worse as well. So time is not the friend here. But I'm curious about your role at the UN in all of this, because it sounds like you're trying to herd cats in one respect here, because the Chinese have indicated through their foreign ministry that they are conducting bilateral discussions. Uh, the United States Senate is sent a letter this week as well to the Treasury Secretary and Mike Pompeo in the State Department that says before any African debt relief can be considered, they want to have a transparency on how much Chinese debt uh, African countries have taken. And so the point there is that the complexity and the politics might get in the way of the speed which you identified as being so important. How are you dealing with these various political influences on, on this process at the same time trying to drive 150 kilometers down an hour down the road? It's not easy, but I think that we have a good start, which is the G20. And the G20 has sort of laid out the framework around which this should happen. So what we're hoping is that between the G20 and the Paris Club, we can have an organized and slightly easier funnel of conversation so that everything goes in and out of there. And eventually, yes, you're going to have some bilateral conversations, but then even those bilateral conversations are ring-fenced around principles that are agreed upon by everybody. Of course, the principle of transparency is an important one. It's not important just for one country. It's important for everybody. And so we believe that whether it's the bilateral debt resolution or even new resources that are sent into the countries, there should be a certain amount of, a complete amount of transparency around the resources because we need uh, for those resources to get to those who need them the most. And countries need to know and populations need to know uh, uh, what their governments are contracting, either in terms of new credit or in terms of uh, debt forgiveness. What is your your calculation in terms of what, what do you think the chances are for actual debt forgiveness? Um, you know, you mentioned before that that it looks like more more, more likely that there'll be a, a moratorium on, on repayments for a while. Um, what do you think the chances are for actual debt to start being written off? I mean, I think that there is more and more a call for that. Um, I'm just, you know, again, the IMF says that this crisis is, is, is deeper than we have ever seen in a century. Um, nobody knows how long it's going to last. Uh, anybody who is listening to sort of the health part of the crisis is beginning to hear that we may have it, we, you know, we may get another wave in October when we were hoping that by October we will be doing recovery and growth. If we cannot do recovery and growth and all of our airlines are still on the ground and our shops are still closed and we can't move food from Cairo to Cape Town, then we will be in a lot of trouble. And I think that... Uh, then there will be clearly a conversation around, you know, debt cancellation. But that's why we're asking for two years, because it's so difficult to say, uh, um, you know, all, all the numbers essentially about what growth would look like in the third quarter or guesswork. And so I think we need to buy, and, and the G20 uh, communicate also says that, that in October, the IMF and, and, and the other financial institutions will pronounce on whether we need to continue at the moratorium for one more year while we understand exactly. I mean, the IMF is predicting uh, a 3% contraction in global growth. 
6% contraction in uh, developed country growth and we are predicting 1.8% contraction in Africa. That may be worse. And if that's the case, some countries will never be able to, to, to honor all their obligations. Maybe not this year, but certainly next year. Last question, because I, I can hear all the beeping and the the alerts that are coming up, and I know how busy you are. Uh, let's look out a year from now or two years from now, and the concern is that uh, it's going to be much more expensive for African governments to borrow money, uh, that governments on the bilateral side have said, listen, we've been burned now two or three times every 10 or 15 years with an African debt crisis. Uh, you know what? That's it. Enough is enough. It's going to be much more difficult and more expensive for Africans to borrow money. Do you foresee that to be a possibility or what are you looking to be uh, you know, forecasting and telling various partners within the UN system and, 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 and the economic system about the future post-COVID? I mean, two things are happening. The first one is that I think the markets, uh, as has always been the case, are probably penalizing Africa a little bit too severely again, for a crisis that is none of their making. So when you look at the spreads, you know, they've all gone up into two digits. Uh, um, and it again, like I say, it's not because the African governments have taken bad policies. The reason we have about 25 countries on the continent being able to access the markets is because those same markets believe that the policies were the, were, were the right ones. Um, so we hope that, you know, as we work through this debt moratorium, we will also be able to allow... Uh, work through a system that allows our countries to go back to the markets. But we don't want to go back to the markets and become sort of the, you know, the ones that I use to compensate for excessive losses on the other side. So I think there has to be a conversation about why have the Ghanaian spreads, you know, spiked so much when Ghana hasn't changed policy. Uh, uh, and, and I think those conversations may be inside the, the Bank of International Settlements and the Financial Stability Board, we will have to have those conversations. I believe that African countries will still have access to the markets for the simple reason that our yields are higher. It is in the interest of our commercial creditors to come to us because you have one choice. You can go to Ghana at 600 basis points or you can stay in the U.S. at negative four. The math is simple. So from that perspective, I think that, you know, we will continue to have access to the markets, but we don't want to have access to the markets at 900 basis points when we think that our policies reflect 400 basis points. We have precedent as well. Remember, Argentina has defaulted so many times. This is not why any of the big banks doesn't have Argentina paper in their portfolio. So my sense is, you know, um, Africa is now part of the financial markets game. This is our first sort of foray. Normally we were just going to talk about debt cancellation and bilateral debt. Now we have a third category called commercial debt. I think we're going to understand better how to negotiate that process, but the markets are also going to have to understand better how to work with us. Vera Songwe is the Executive Secretary of the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa, and she joins us from Addis Ababa. Thank you so much for your time today, Vera. We really appreciate your insights and all the work you're doing. Thank you. Thanks for having me and stay safe. Kobus, that was absolutely fascinating on so many parts. I thought the most interesting thing that she said was at the very, very end that it's going to be about yield and the 600 basis points that Ghana will be able to offer compared to, say, what the United States will be able to do. Now, that brings me back to uh, some comments made by the very provocative and very, very interesting, always fascinating uh, Kenyan economist David Ndi. And he said in a recent interview with the Elephant website, which is a uh, a fantastic uh, news and commentary website in Kenya, 
that the new extractive resource in Africa is not going to be oil, mineral, and timber, which is historically what it's been. It's going to be yield, that people are coming to Africa to extract yield and to get interest. And in some ways, that is going to be the penalty that comes out of this crisis for Africa. It is not fair, as Vera pointed out, because this is not a crisis of their making. In many ways, African economies were doing really, really well. They were managing their economies very well in many cases, not all. Uh, But they are going to pay a penalty in the form of higher yields. And that actually might validate what David and Dee was saying. Yes, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm no expert on this, but 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 yeah, you know, kind of that that I, I can see that that logic. Um, you know, I'm I'm struck by how even before the COVID crisis, how so much of the discourse around African debt has been so unfair. You know, it was frequently so kind of just simply couched in terms of oh, this is kind of profligate lending from these governments who don't know what they're doing, essentially. Um, you know, and and completely discounting the the very real developmental needs for for a lot of that debt. Um, so I, I fear that, yeah, that again, like Africa will, will end up being blamed for something that that is not a, a crisis of their own making. Um, but, you know, I think it will it will be very instructive to then also see how different African economies respond to the crisis and how uh, how they come back, um, particularly in relation to... to um, commodities and other supply chains you know kind of which will remain scrambled for a, for a while i think even after after the the crisis is over so um did you have any kind of favorites when you're looking at africa about which countries will bounce back faster well ironically it's going to be the countries that do not have uh that do not depend on oil and that do not depend on raw materials i think it's going to be kenya and ethiopia and potentially south africa given the diversity of industries in South Africa, certainly countries like Angola, Nigeria, and Sudan and South Sudan are going to be troubled by the fact that oil is at historical lows. So, and then possibly we're starting to see some pickup now in uh, the mining sector. So one of the things we've been covering in our newsletter is how uh, China's electric vehicle industry is starting to ramp up again. And the government in China uh, issued uh, continued uh, tax benefits for EVs. And that was very, very important to maintain demand in the EV market. And that has spurred uh, Colton and Tantalum demand in the Democratic Republic of Congo and in some of the mines in South Africa as well. So some of those strategic minerals might actually do quite well. I'm quite skeptical about the long-term future. I was asked on CNBC a couple of weeks ago what my three-month forecast would be for East Africa, and I said, I don't have a forecast. We simply cannot make a forecast until we have a vaccine in sight. And until there's a vaccine, as Vera pointed out, this thing may you you know sweep back again in October, and that puts us all back into our shelter in place, and it really disrupts the economy yet again. So let's now kind of turn our conversation to China, because we couldn't speak directly to China about China with Vera, in part because she represents the United Nations. As such, they do not talk about specific member countries. But you and I, we can do anything we want. So let's talk about China. Interesting headline uh, in the New York Times, written by the Associated Press. China silent amid global calls to give Africa debt relief. And then in there, they quote the, uh, the Ugandan finance minister and uh, saying, we have strong bilateral relations with China, but they haven't come to us saying anything. Uh, so, <laughs> so we don't know what's going on with the Chinese right now. They have said from the podium of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Beijing that they are working bilaterally with countries. That's again, are they working within the G20 system? Are they working within the IMF and the World Bank? There are some indications 
that they are for at least part of their debt. Uh, the folks over at Reuters received a fax interview. And again, that was fascinating that they received the answers by fax, but we'll save that for another conversation. But that indicated that the Chinese were willing to go along with uh, World Bank and IMF initial debt rescheduling programs as well. So what have you been hearing or thinking or talking about in relation to the Chinese role in all of this? Well, you know, as, as usual, all of this is at maximum opacity, you know, so it's very difficult to know what's what's going on behind the scenes. Um, I would be surprised if they're not talking with anyone. You know, I'd be very surprised if, if there isn't any kind of um, talks going on on, on bilateral level. Um, whether those talks are being made harder by the fallout of the, the crisis around, around Guangzhou and the, the pressure on... Um, on African governments by African civil society to do that is another question. I don't think so. I really, I think those are two separate tracks entirely. You know, the guys from the finance ministry drive up in the presidential palace or the finance ministry and nobody sees them in the civil society. Don't you think that that all happens on two totally different tracks? I think it causes, the one causes noise. That that might be seeping through in you know some of some of the other conversations, but you know it's it's very difficult to say. Um, the you know I, I think I think the 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 difficulty is you know any issue around Chinese debt is is immediately politicized. Um, you know as we saw with the American response to to debt to, to the question of debt relief. So I think the, the part of the opacity might well be to try and kind of hammer out some kind of deal before any kind of, you know, before before anyone else kind of catches wind of it. Um, I mean, that, that's probably an optimistic view of, of what's going on. And, you know, the pessimistic view might be that, that, that China's waiting and seeing. Um, what, what do you think? I think they're having conversations with their biggest borrowers first. So the reason why Uganda may not have heard from the Chinese yet is because $10 billion out of a $145 billion portfolio is not really that large. So they're probably in conversations with uh, the Angolans and possibly the Kenyans, where the debt portfolios are considerably larger. So that's just, uh, you know, Kenyans, not necessarily much larger than that. But but still, I think it's in the six to seven billion dollar range. I don't remember it off the top of my head, but that's still pretty sizable. Uh, just Chinese debt, by the way, 10 billion is the total amount that Uganda owes. And a third of that is to China. So just about three billion dollars. So there might be a prioritization. After all, there are. 54 different uh, you know, countries that they have to work through. Many of them, not all of them have Chinese debt, but quite a few do. Uh, 53, because I don't think Iswatini, by the way, takes any Chinese debt. They don't have any diplomatic partnership. But nonetheless, uh, they're probably working through this. Uh, I think the politics of in the United States are very interesting. Uh, so the letters from the Senate Finance Committee to Treasury Secretary Mnuchin and also to Secretary of State Pompeo could be a complicating factor in all of this. Uh, we are at a low point in U.S.-China relations. Africa has gotten onto the agenda in conservative U.S. media. It is certainly uh, on Mike Pompeo's radar. And so could the United States start to you know, insist on more transparency from Africans? Let's kind of go back to last June when Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs, Tibor Neji, he indicated in a Reuters interview that he did not support African debt relief if it was going to bail out the Chinese. And that is certainly the narrative that the Senate uh, leadership is taking on this and saying that they do not want to facilitate African debt relief if it's going to benefit Beijing. 
So the politics could get very messy and very, very complicated. And the concern that I have is that that will slow down the process in Africa. After all, the one thing it does not have is time. So I, I just don't think we should underestimate the, the desire in the United States to, to rope in uh, African debt as another potential kind of contentious point in the U.S.-China relationship. Yeah, I mean, you know, as, as, as we discussed with Vera, that will almost certainly cause mass hunger, you know. Um, so, so any kind of significant kind of holding back of this process for this kind of geopolitical reason it starts bordering on actual evil, you know. Um, so I would be I would be very disappointed in the US if, if they use African you know, kind of health and, and, and you know, public security as, as this is kind of bargaining chip. Um, but we, we'll have to see. And, and to be fair, this came out of the Senate, so it's not policy. So I just want to, that these are just ideas coming from the Senate, just to be very clear that we're not indicating that this is White House or State Department policy. So just, but it is a something to consider. Yeah, I mean, you know, kind of, it's it's, it's a really big issue. It's a really complicated issue. But but you know, kind of, I'm encouraged by um, Vera's comments on um, on on how they're pulling together all of the stakeholders, how they're trying to get a unified position um, that you know that that doesn't leave out any African countries, doesn't kind of doesn't force any of them into default, and still maintains their access to markets after the crisis is over. I think that's that sounds to me like a very smart way of dealing with it. Um, and then you know, but but we'll have to see how rating agencies and and um, governments in the global north how they how they play ball with it. You know, kind of because but but the thing is, this really is a crisis. You know, it's a, it's a it's a potential kind of humanitarian disaster. So so you know, kind of people need to kind of keep their heads together. I think. And if you are interested in this topic, then there are two pieces of reading which I recommend. One was a recent article by. Uh, Deborah Braudigam, the professor and director at the China-Africa Research Initiative in, in uh, at Johns Hopkins University in the United States, uh, she did a great little breakdown on Chinese debt, as well as Yun Sun from the Brookings Institution uh, wrote a recent blog post uh, echoing many of the same things as Professor Braudigam, but really kind of keying up one very, very important point. And I'm, I think this point is lost on several key stakeholders in Africa. Number one is the Chinese do not do... Uh, debt wipeouts. They don't erase debt for the most part. There are some grants and some interest-free loans that they have wiped out, but that is very, very small. On their concessional and their market-based loans, uh, both Professor Braudigam and Yunsen at Brookings uh, make it very, very clear that there is not a lot of precedent for the Chinese to do that. So we really should not expect a debt cancellation, but more of a debt rescheduling. Uh, that also is echoed by some of the folks I've been speaking with in Beijing at various think tanks who also say that there's a political component to the Chinese debt in Africa, and that they want to make sure that they retain the leverage that they have over African countries with regards to the debt. Now, the leverage is not the traditional type of leverage that I think a lot of people assume uh, people want from Africa, which is resources, land, food, whatever that, that, that is in that kind of more imperial colonial space that has defined Africa's relationship with the outside world for the past 400 years. What people in Beijing are telling me is that the leverage that they want to make sure of is that African country X, Y, or Z, uh, free of any debt to China, 
then all of a sudden starts to entertain the idea that they will uh, invite uh, the Dalai Lama to come, or maybe they will start to align themselves more with the United States or recognize Taiwan. These are the issues that are much closer to home for the Chinese. Uh, what I've said many times on the show previously, 4THKXJ, that's the acronym for uh, Taiwan, Tibet, Tiananmen, the party, Hong Kong, and Xinjiang. If African countries can stay away from those issues, then China will be very happy. The moment that African countries start to kind of push back into those spaces and recognize Taiwan or play with the United States or do things like that, then the debt becomes leverage for them. That's what I'm hearing. Of course, this is all unofficial. Uh, nobody really knows for sure. Uh, Kobus, does that make sense to you? Does that resonate with you when you hear those that kind of rhetoric coming out of uh, think tanks in Beijing? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, leverage is obviously is, is a very loaded word. Um, and I, I can well imagine that same situation being being kind of rephrased in terms of simply that the debt in a way cements the relationship, you know, and puts everyone on the same page. Um, and, you know, kind of because it's, it's, it is always also couched into, you know, from the Chinese side as as a global South country helping other global South countries to, to develop because, of course, China is, is, if there's one thing one can say about China and Chinese development, it, it was a very infrastructure-heavy model of development. And so that is always the model that they that they also, you know, kind of recommend to other countries like in Africa. So, so in that sense, you know, um, I, I can see from a Chinese side that that the word leverage would be would be seen as this kind of very kind of instrumentalist, kind of manipulative term, and that they would prefer something like you know, deeper cooperation or something like that. But, but you know, but I think the point stands is that the, that that kind of the, the the relationship is deepened, the influence is deepened, um, and that it, it in a way puts sets them everyone up to kind of for a long term cooperative relationship, which is what something like the Belt and Road Initiative is about anyway. You know, um, so so that I think is, is is what it ends up looking like. It's not it's not really building influence as this kind of like puppet master playing all these different countries but it's like as someone who always has to be in the loop has to be consulted in some kind of way and just to show you the intensity of these issues uh, just today in this week uh, the new vision newspaper in uganda published a correction for referring to uh, tsai ingwen as the president of taiwan and they issued a correction in, in the paper. And the New Vision newspaper in Uganda is a state-run newspaper. So China does have more influence with state-run media. But this correction basically said, uh, we erred in referring to uh, Tsai Ing-wen as the president of Taiwan. Instead, she is the leader of the Taiwan region. <laughs> and we acknowledge uh, the one China policy and sincerely regret any misunderstanding about that. And I guess my point here is that these, it's hard to really explain how deep these issues run for China. So you're right. Leverage is my word, not their word. They would probably never do that. They use language like, don't hurt the feelings of the Chinese people. And probably buried on page 238, section 3, paragraph 4, subclause A, there's going to be some opaque language, as you referred to, that has a snapback clause that says, if you start messing with the 4THKXJ type of things, then the interest comes back. Now, it will be, as you, as you pointed out, in this very wordy, opaque language. But my suspicion, pure speculation here, admittedly, is that somewhere buried in these debt renegotiation contracts is going to be something to that effect. I think that's a deal that most African leaders will happily make 
Because for them, these issues, eh, it's okay. I'm good. I don't need the Dalai Lama to come. <laughs> I don't need to recognize Taiwan. I don't need to talk about Xinjiang. These are not core national interests for African leaders. So I think this will be an amenable deal for, for most Africans. It won't be a problem. Yeah, you know, kind of most African leaders don't particularly care about Xinjiang, right? Um, so the I, I think, but and I think also one has to keep in mind that this isn't uh, this isn't unique. Um, you know, like you know, di different different global powers have different preoccupations, and they're they're, they're not all the same as China. But they uh, like Africa's relationship with them for decades and decades have been characterized with this kind of pressure. Um, you know, so so it goes back to the Cold War and pressure from the U.S. Uh, you know, kind of around around links with the Soviet Union, for example. It's 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 not new, and it's something that that Africa has been negotiating for a long time. Last key point here, and it's a point that you have raised on many occasions when we've talked about Chinese debt, is that this is not a particularly popular issue at home in China. Uh, loaning out, and, and again, people in China are very, very poorly informed for the most part when it comes to the money that flows from China to Africa. Most people in China, when you talk about it, think it's grants, just the same way that most Americans think they give far more to foreign aid than they actually do. So there are misperceptions uh, domestically, both in the United States and China, that shape opinions on this. That being said, most Chinese just civil society and the average guy on the street thinks they're giving away money to Africa rather than loaning money that is paid back with interest. So very important distinction here. But the debt cancellation issue, my guess, will probably not get a lot of airplay on Chinese media and will probably be restricted in the discussions on Chinese social media simply because it is unpopular to not being able to repay those debts. Also, in Chinese culture, there is a tradition of repaying debts. The debt cancellation thing is really not something that is that that has a lot of precedent in Chinese culture. Charity, philanthropy, these are all new concepts in Chinese culture for the most part. So there's not a vocabulary and a lot of precedent to talk about debt cancellation in Chinese culture. And also at the same time, politically, for Xi Jinping, He's got, a, he's got a difficult situation right now domestically given what's going on with COVID-19. And my suspicion is they're not going to want to talk a lot about how they've written off $145 billion of debt or at least rescheduled it. It's a point that you've brought up on many occasions, and I just wanted to make sure we included it in our discussion today. Yeah, no, it's a it's a big it's a big issue, and of course, you know that the, those kinds of vocab vocabularies don't really exist in China, but there is a global vocabulary of of you know kind of, of discussing Africa as unique, as separate, as different, as less than other global economies. You know, so so there's a, there's an entire set of of terms and think sets sets of thinking around oh african leaders so profligate african leaders so so dumb so so irresponsible you know so weak african institutions are so weak like you know this this like you get polite versions you get concerned versions you get racist versions of all of these discussions and they, they tend to ensnare african countries in the in which frequently turns out to be completely false discourse um you know and, and i fear that in this case this kind of thing will happen again where africa will essentially be blamed for you know, for 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 a situation that is none of its own making, um, and then you know, kind of like put in different in, in special categories. You know, kind of uh, you know, kind of using using these kind of vocabularies of of you know differentiating Africa from from other countries, which are frequently 
you know, kind of actually managerially, you know, kind of less well off than African countries. So, you know, so the unfairness of that always rankles me and, and you know, kind of, and, and I think it's important to really keep an eye on, on, on that development as it goes on. But that criticism that you're talking about doesn't just come from outsiders. It also comes from a lot from African constituents themselves who have very, very high levels of distrust of their own governments and how their governments manage the economy. So that's that's something that's coming both within and without Africa. Yes, yes, exactly. And, and you know, frequently, you know, they, they, you know, it's not like Africa doesn't have issues, right? <laughs> so, so, you know, kind of like, you know, for, for every kind of well-run African country, you can point to a poorly-run African country. It's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a big, complicated continent with a lot of issues. So, so yeah, you know, kind of all of those, but, but, but again, you know, kind of the, the, the idea of, of, for example, of Ghana being, you know, kind of being penalized in terms of lending for absolutely no reason at all, you know, for, for just simply the, you know, the, the spread just shooting up for, for, you know, with, with no policy change, you know, is an indication of, of how Africa frequently is treated internationally. Let me close our discussion with quoting a note that I received from a banker in Beijing who deals with Africa. And uh, he said, and I'm quoting here, the appetite shrinks for additional African exposure. African economic outlook looks worse than before, undermining the rationale for more investment. Debt sustainability of some African countries is now undermined further. Currency risk is elevated. So there is probably not going to be a lot of appetite for excessive big spending like we've seen over the past 10 years. And I think it's going to be quite a shock to a lot of African countries who have become accustomed to the $60 billion FOCAC packages that come out every three years. And that's something, of course, we didn't talk about today, but we will have plenty of time this year to talk about. FOCAC is scheduled for next year in Dakar. We don't know exactly when. We don't know if, in fact, it will actually happen as a real meeting uh, if it, or if it goes virtual like so many of the other meetings. But the key question that Kobus and I are going to be looking at is whether the FOCAC summit will actually be another, here's a big check, or will it be about debt restructuring, where you don't have to pay us back as, a, any money? And it'll be interesting because China is, doesn't have the appetite to spend as much, both financially and politically, and Africa doesn't necessarily want to take on more debt. And so maybe it will be about debt restructuring, and that's something that we're going to keep our eyes on through the rest of this year. So debt is going to be one of the key issues that we are following very, very closely. In fact, it's one of the topics that Copas and I focus on in our daily email newsletter that goes out to subscribers. Uh, we'd love to have you join our reader community. We're basically tracking all of the news related to COVID-19, to debt, to what's going on in Guangzhou, all of these different issues, the changing civil society relationship. All week this week, we've been focusing on the chasm that is growing between African civil society and China and the really heightened levels of distrust. Uh, to, to suggest that there's been a rupture in the relationship uh, seems now more apt than ever, but this is what we do in our daily newsletter and would love for you to join us. You can find out more at chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. If you want to reach out to Kobus or uh, and I anytime, uh, you can email us directly, eric at chinaafricaproject.com or Kobus at chinaafricaproject.com. We love to hear from you and what you think. Uh, good, bad, and ugly is always welcome as well. So please do share your feedback with us. So for Kobus Venstaden, I'm Eric Olander. Until next time, thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash chinaafricaproject to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Studinsky. 
or eric at eorlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.